I was reading the paper the other day, and I came across a story about uh, a UFO sighting by the Chilean Navy. Some of you were nodding. It was uh, featured recently because, of course, we gave up our own UFO program. But um, this was in 2014. There was a sighting of something by a couple of Navy flyers. And the, um, the Chilean government investigated this for two years, trying to figure out what it was. They were pretty sure it was something that shouldn't exist based on the data that they were seeing. And then eventually, what they did was they um, put it out on the internet. Uh, they didn't keep the data secret, um, so they put it out there. And as can happen, a lot of people worked on it, found it interesting. And eventually, they discovered that the flying, the unidentified flying object was a commercial aircraft. And they even matched it to publicly available data on the route of this plane. And sure enough, it was Spanish airliner flying normally. So it was a misperception. Basically, it was they had the data, but it didn't. They didn't come to the right conclusion based on the data that was there. So how did that misperception happen? And the article I read about it said lots of small errors added up. Thought that was interesting. One of them is that the object looked close, but the pilots assumed. Uh, they, it looked like it was close, so they assumed it was close, but actually it was 50 miles farther away than they thought. So um, they didn't really check the actual distance. Another is that it looked like the air was boiling underneath this unidentified object, and of course that was just the heat from the, uh, the jet's engines, the airliner engines, the exhaust. But what they didn't account for is that military infrared exaggerates uh, heat data because it's hard to see. And so it's built into the system that shows the information to the pilots that it exaggerates uh, differences in heat. So it looked very dramatic, like this dramatic boiling. And so they interpreted that as, oh, it's the, it's the spaceship's engines. And then um, I'm adding this one. Uh, it wasn't in the article, but there were clearly some beliefs operating. You know, there's the idea of, oh, cool, maybe that's a UFO. <laughs> you know, uh, they had to have an idea that that was a possibility, um, and let their imaginations go. Maybe there was interest somehow, or, ooh, I want to be special. I want to be the one who found something really cool. So all those ideas have to be in place and unseen to come to this conclusion. And then I, I pulled this quote out of the article. Officials had never thought to examine their most basic assumptions and impressions. <laughs> why, am I, you know, why am I going in so much detail about this? Well, every moment we are receiving a lot of sense data. And we receive you think about what you actually receive, you know, what is it that your sense organs can detect? It's pretty basic. 
your eyes can detect the difference between light and dark, and they can detect color. That's it. That's all that's coming into your eye. And your ears can hear, you know, they hear differences, just in differences in this vibration of the membrane that's being stimulated by the sound. And you can feel pressure, you know, on your body. But the way the, the, the force of it and the distribution of it affects, I mean, there are several different kinds of touch nerves, but still it affects different ones of those touch nerves, and it synthesizes into, oh, I'm feeling the hard coldness of this metal bell compared to the softness of this shirt. You know, it feels different based on the pattern of stimulation, but it's really just, just pressure. That's pretty much what we can sense. And so what we're doing is we're, what, what's actually happening through the mind is an assembly of very basic sense data and then a combination of that with memory, what we've learned to associate, uh, into our idea of an object. And why am I going through this in so much detail? Because we make a lot of mistakes like those Chilean pilots. You know, and I'm not going to try to convince you that, you know, the chair doesn't exist, although in certain sense it doesn't, um, because it's conventional truth. It's, it's good. You should know what chairs are. You should know what cars are before you step into the crosswalk, please. <laughs> but um, these things were constructed. Um, sorry, we're having a little trouble with the sound, but hopefully it's not too distracting. Um, so this, I mean, this is the job of the mind, actually. The mind is to, it, what it, one of the things that it does, one of its functions is called perception. And of course in Western psychology, perception has a complicated meaning about, uh, that includes a lot of interpretation, a lot more interpretation than the uh, Buddhist definition of perception. But it's okay, we don't need to go into those fine details. Essentially your mind is uh, constructing or what you've seen, um, what, what you experience, based on some very simple inputs. And so it's, it's, we can start to ask ourselves, how many of our most basic assumptions and impressions have we examined? Not many of them. And you can say, well, why does that matter? It's, you know, it works so that I need to know which one my car is and assemble my life in this way. What's the problem? And generally, it's not a problem. Uh, people who can't do that actually can't function very well. So, you know, we know that that's uh, it's not a basic problem. But a lot of dukkha comes about because we have made certain particular errors in the way we perceive. And the Buddha pointed that out. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming Kim's law of the universe. This is what the Buddha's teachings are about. Um, how it is that we're, that if we just shift how we see things, how we assemble the data that's coming in, that's actually the key. Not that that's easy, but that's one way of describing what it is that he's asking us to do, is to retrain in perception. I want to talk a little bit more about this Chilean incident, though, what, like what we can learn from it. 
So one thing is that note that they reached out and they made the data public. <laughs> when the data was something that the, only the military was analyzing within its own world, they didn't get the answer, <laughs> right? But then they said, well, you know, we want to, let's check this. So they put it out on the internet uh, and they got a lot more people, people who weren't as biased. They weren't part of that world. They weren't including the pilots who had seen this and wanted it to be a certain thing. Um, that matters, actually, to have a different bias coming into interpreting the data. And that's a little bit what we do in our practice when we deliberately, um, first of all, talk to a teacher, for example, or even talk with our peers uh, about our experiences. Not so much our usual way of, you know, um, gabbing away, she's doing this, but it's going to prevent what I want. How should I approach this so I can still get what I want? You know, that's what a lot of our gabbing is about with other people. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about questioning our perceptions. You know, I, I feel angry when my coworker behaves this way, um, when he does X, and I think he's lazy and not doing his job very well. Is there another way I could see this? That might be a useful question to discuss with a teacher or with your friend. So it's helpful to have kind of multiple views. More subtly, this is what we do when we read the suttas. And I know not everybody does that, but for some people, um, part of their practice is to study the ancient texts where the Buddha was teaching, to have the more likely what the closer to what the Buddha was saying. And he gives it sort of a different worldview. You know, he says you should see in terms of the Four Noble Truths, for example, instead of seeing in terms of what I want and what I don't want, how about seeing in terms of suffering and the end of suffering? So we're, we learn to see things, oh, right, I could see this differently. Or he says, you know, when you're looking at your experience, you could think in terms of um, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, the six sense species, instead of, you know, me and you and my life and my problems. And he sort of gives different paradigms to lenses to put on experience. And that's another way that we kind of train ourselves to see a little bit differently. That can be very helpful. And then also I think we can be humbled from this Chilean incident by how easy it is to be fooled. You know, can we, can we really say that we've never had the experience of thinking that something was true and then, you know, it really wasn't. We were completely off base about what we had assumed was the case. And it's humbling whenever that happens. Um, if we if we are of that inclination to allow ourselves to be humbled. And so then we might ask, well, is there a way that could, perception could be made more accurate? And there is. That's a lot of what practice is about. So I'm, I'm offering tonight the view of practice as a retraining of perception uh, in order that we don't uh, make those mistakes as often. This is not a trivial question. I mean, I, mentioned, I said earlier that this is a lot, cause of a lot of suffering, but just to give a real-world example which maps onto our practice, um, consider the example of um, Mikhail Gorbachev. Okay, so... Um, you know, he was the last Soviet premier uh, in power in the late 80s and until the early 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And there was a time during his um, time in office that 
The Soviets initially mistook a flock of geese for an American nuclear missile strike. And for a brief period, they thought it had started. But luckily, before they pressed the button for the counter-strike, uh, they figured out it was a flock of geese. So this is not trivial in world politics, and it's not trivial in our life either. How many nuclear missile counter-strikes have you launched based on inaccurate attack data? Yeah, <laughs> so we think somebody is slighting us or trying to hurt us or trying to manipulate us and we figure it all out and we come back and that's not what they were doing at all. We've launched our counter-strike not being aware that there wasn't actually a strike. So even for at the level of smooth relationships, it's really important to get our perceptions a little bit more accurate and certainly at the level of fundamental dukkha, um, even more important. You know, to this day, uh, Gorbachev keeps a statue of a goose in his office mm -hmm. to remind. So retraining perception, um, cleaning the lens, if you will, or maybe just removing lenses, using fewer lenses for us to look through as we view our experience, as we create this world out of the sense data that's coming in. A lot of the training is an attempt to counter false perceptions, or else cases where we overweight a certain type of perception. Um, we have perceptions that we favor and don't pay as, as much attention to other perceptions. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's not that we're aiming for the one true accurate perception that you're going to get and everybody should have. Uh, it's not that um, cut and dried and black and white. But the mind will try to do that. It will try to say, oh, I need the perfect perception. But what we want to do is just make sure that we're not misperceiving in a given moment, that we're not grasping or incorrectly bringing in data that's not there. So the Buddha recommends a number of ways, a number of general areas that we need to change our perception and specific practices for doing that. The first is that we tend to uh, misperceive things as permanent when they are impermanent. That's a big one. And so we normally see fixed objects and fixed people. You know, that person is that way. Um, it's not that impermanence is a fixed universal law. How could it be, really? Um, but we need to stop seeing so much in terms of fixity. And so we train in seeing things as impermanent. So we train in deliberately seeing the changes going on in things and seeing the endings of things so that we can't believe that things are universally, eternally existing. So we tend to like beginnings. You know, we, we rush from one beginning, something starts, and then we feel the next beginning. You can even see this in practice when you sit and watch the breath, right? You see the beginning of the in-breath, and then maybe the mind wanders away, and then we see, oops, we see a thought arise, and we say, oops, wait a minute, thinking, because the thought arose, we missed the fading of the breath. We missed the part where the breath went away. 
Um, we only saw the beginning of the thought, and then we see the beginning again of the breath. Oh, back to mindfulness, beginning. And we tend to see beginning, beginning, beginning. So we're encouraged to pay a little bit more attention to endings, just to counter, not because endings are better, but just to counter our tendency to see only the rise and not the fall. Also, some senses are more easily penetrated than others. Like sound, for instance, is really great. If you're just starting impermanence practice, do it with sound. Because you know, even as you're listening to my voice, there are pauses, there's the end of the sentence. It's very easy to see the endings and the rise and fall in general, the impermanence and the flux and our lack of control over sound. Something can happen above us at any moment, like those steps or whatever. So that one's pretty easy to see the flux, the flowing nature of it. Sight is not as easy. We look and we say, the bell has not changed (laughs) since the beginning of this session. Of course it has, but not in ways that we can see so easily. So sight is harder to penetrate, but worthwhile um, to see if that is also something that changes. Of course, body sensations, the breath, is never the same, actually. And yet we know it's the breath. Why? Because we put a concept on it, in breath, out breath. But the actual experience of the breath is continually ever-flowing and never the same, like snowflakes. So this is a worthwhile practice, just to just to observe that. And it's an easy practice. It's always available. Change is always available. So I encourage you to tune into that. Another area where we often misperceive is that we tend to see things that are suffering as not suffering. And things, sometimes things that are not suffering are suffering. (laughs) But often it's the first, right, is that we we think that um, on sort of a trivial level, this cup of coffee is really going to do it for me. I know you don't actually believe that in an absolute sense, but the degree that we desire it <laughs> sometimes makes me wonder. Um, so there's, but actually, you know, coffee is, it's not like a bad thing to have the coffee, but it's definitely uh, not eternal bliss. And it um, often brings some problems. It has various effects that are not always pleasant, um, not always convenient. At the very least, coffee makes you have to go to the bathroom at some point. So, you know, it's like you should look at all the effects of the actions that we have, and they all start to look pretty mixed at some point, right? So there's an interesting quote in the suttas um, that says, what others speak of as happiness that the noble ones speak of as suffering. What others speak of as suffering, that the noble ones have known as happiness. Now that's a very specific statement made in a certain context. Obviously, I think obviously, the Buddha is not implying that you know disease and war and other obvious forms of suffering would be seen as happiness by uh, enlightened people. The noble ones are people who have, have some understanding of the Buddha's teachings. 
I think we're, we're not asked to take it quite so literally and therefore object to it. But maybe to take it as a, an inquiry or an investigation, what could that mean? Could it be that some of the things that I associate with happiness when I go through my day actually have a component of suffering to them? Um, and therefore are not worth, you know, it's not that we would stop doing the events of our lives, we have to keep going to work and having our relationships and eating and peeing and all those things, sleeping and showering. But maybe we wouldn't invest them with so much sense of this has to be this way, it has to be pleasant in this way, I have to do it in this order, this is what's going to make a good day. We have a lot of that, those beliefs happening subtly. And that's, of course, why we get upset when it doesn't go the way it's supposed to. We had planned our breakfast to be a certain way, but it didn't happen because our partner drank all the milk or whatever. Is that even worth being upset about, <laughs> you know? Um, but if we have invested that happiness is having my cereal for breakfast, maybe yes. So we're asked to, to look at the side of things that's kind of unsatisfactory. We can't really get it all together and keep it that way. It's hard, and if we, yeah, that's part of being human. And so, then, then the mind starts to ask interesting spiritual questions, like, well, what, what would really be happy? What would really be more satisfying than having my the right kind of cereal and the right kind of coffee for breakfast and all of that? Particularly interesting to ask, what is it that when, when I speak of it as suffering, the noble ones would see that as happiness? What could that refer to? If we if we eliminate, you know, the obvious war and pestilence and all of that is not what that's referring to, then it becomes a very interesting spiritual question. Many people find, for example, that let go of self-interest. I'm going to let go of this. Um, microphone. Can you still hear me if I speak up yeah. a bit? Yeah. Good. I, I don't see anyone using a hearing assist device. So, okay. I asked about this, by the way, and I I learned that um, this speaker system can uh, pick up radio signals from other devices. So, if somebody else in the building has a radio frequency device it can, um, it, this system will try to pick it up. So I don't know if, you know, the security guard walks by with a walkie-talkie or whatever it is. Some, um, anyway, just an FYI on that. So seeing things that are normally suffering, we might think of as suffering as happiness. Many people find that uh, behavior that is uh, selfless is actually very satisfying. You don't need too much instruction to learn this, right? When you do something nice for someone else, or when you come and volunteer or something, and it's uh, it actually feels good in a certain way. And um, that's not a false impression. It is actually a very good feeling to let go of our self-interest. And what are all those little smaller happiness is about, getting my cereal, getting my coffee, not having traffic, self-interest. You know, those are about satisfying what I want 
in a particular moment. So that particular reversal of uh, kind of bolstering the self and satisfying desires, sense desires, compared to uh, releasing releasing our self-interest in an appropriate way. That's one of those reversals. Just to give a specific example, and, it, and it's worth observing this in your own life. And then the really interesting one that leads right into the third area where we tend to misperceive is that um, the Buddha goes so far as to say that actually the self itself is a misperception that we should look at. Not that we don't exist. Um, that would be too extreme. Again, these are subtle, subtler teachings than that. But to really um, watch our habit of creating a self of various kinds and what that really means when we're creating a self, you know, what it is that's being created and how it happens, that's really worth looking at because mostly it's a habit. Um, not necessarily a bad one. Uh, like I said, you should know which car is yours when you go out to the parking lot. That would be good. Uh, and that doesn't go away when we uh, don't get, when we let go of attachment to the self. But it's worth looking at this. Um, we have a number of different kinds of selves. I'll just point some out. One is an active self that we see as an agent or as a knower or as a doer. Um, as competent. Um, and this self is a difficult one because it's hard to keep it up all the time. Like those times when we aren't competent, for example. Which happens. And so then there's suffering if we're really invested in that active self. I don't know if this is much of a practice, but there's. Um, I'm reminded of a scene from Star Trek: The Next Generation, where I think it was, I think it was that guy Q, um, who was trying to, you know, he's always trying, sort of bothering the um, crew of the Starship Enterprise. He's this um, being that has a lot of powers, basically, but not a lot of wisdom, in my opinion. So he, he one time was boasting about all about being omniscient and you know there's an, an omnipotent to some degree, you know, it's like, there's nowhere in the universe I can't just snap my fingers and go, there's, you know, I can be big, I can be small, I can be strong, I can speak any language, I can know your thoughts if I want, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so then he sort of gets high on this egoic self that he's creating, and he challenges, I forget which crew member, might have been Riker, um, to give him a task that he can't do. He says, come on, come on, tell me something that, you know, and I'll do it. And whoever it was looks at him calmly and says, get lost. <laughs> so this is a good task for the competent ego is um, get lost. <laughs> what would it be like if you weren't in control? We also have what I would call a, a passive internal self. This is something that, that we're not really actively thinking about, or, but it sort of hovers in the background. And it usually hovers in the form of, we, we surely believe that someone is experiencing our life. 
you know, I have memories of 10 years ago, so there must be something that was experiencing that and has gone continuously up to now, and I can access that through memory. There's something there in the background that's living this life. It's a perfectly reasonable assumption um, based on the fact that you have functioning memory and that you don't remember somebody else's life. At least most people don't, although some people can. <laughs> um, so reasonable assumption, but remember the Chilean pilots. So we need to check our assumptions and impressions. So it's actually helpful with this passive self is to look more carefully at what it would be. You know, if, if that thing exists, what is it? Can you see it? Point at it. Tell me what it is. Interestingly, when we try to do this, it tends to vanish. There's a lovely quote from a Tibetan teacher about this. When we look for this self that we're cherishing and protecting, we can't even find it. The self is shifty and ungraspable. When we say, I'm old, we're referring to our body as self. When we say, my body, the self becomes the owner of the body. When we say, I'm tired, the self is equated with physical or emotional feelings. The self is our perceptions when we say, I see, and our thoughts when we say, I think. When we can't find a self within or outside of these parts, we may then conclude that the self is that which is aware of all of these things, the knower or the mind. But when we look for the knower or the mind, we can't find any shape, color, or form. This is not a, again, this is not a statement of truth. It's a investigation to be done. So look for yourself, um, whoever yourself is, <laughs> and see, uh, see what this self that we think is there in the background, experience everything. What is that, really? And so we won't find a single thing, probably. Again, that doesn't mean there's nothing, but it's not what we thought, probably. So that was the passive internal self. There's also a passive external self. Um, this one is not talked about much. But we sort of assume that there's some authority figure in the universe. It may take the form of a religious god, but it doesn't have to. I was watching um, that TV show called The Crown, and there's this wonderful episode in season one where uh, the young Queen Elizabeth is preparing for her coronation, and she tries on the crown that she's going to have to wear at that time, and it's heavy. <laughs> and she's like, whoa, and she puts it on. She realizes it's not that easy to look dignified while you're walking and trying to balance this heavy thing on your head. And so um, she, she turns to a servant who's attending her and says, and says could I borrow this for a few days uh, in order to get used to wearing it before the coronation? And in that um, lovely British way, he says to her, from whom, madam? And she, and she realized, and there's this look on her face like, oh, <laughs> who do you borrow the crown from when you're the queen? You know, he goes on to say, if it's not yours, I don't know who it is, whose it would be. But she, she saw in that moment, she woke up, that 
she had kind of had this idea that there's some vague authority figure there. Uh, but it's not. The whole, I mean, a lot of the, the crown could be called the self, really. Um, it's the construction of a, a system and people having roles within that system. And she got a glimpse at that moment of that construction, I would say. So we very easily imagine that there's some, because of our Judeo-Christian culture, even if you didn't grow up strongly with that, there can be a sense that there's an authority figure watching us. Choose Santa if you don't want God, you know, whatever it is. Somebody who knows that we've been naughty and nice. Um, We personify all kinds of things like that. And Buddhism asks us to look at that, too. What is that? Who is that? What if there's no authority? Doesn't mean there's anarchy, but it's a, maybe a different thing. You know, it just has a lot to do with freedom. So we're asked to look also at that. Don't worry, by the way. You don't have to give up God if you like God, but any God that you could perceive or think of, probably not. So various ways to practice with this, we can ask who is experiencing this or something like that. We can, there might be a shift when we ask that question, and then we can rest in that shift. It may not last, it may last a split second, a little shift, and then back to the regular world, but that shift was significant. Who experiences this? Or we can we can cultivate a feeling of stillness. Uh, that's often recommended, even from the very beginning. This is not, this is advanced practice, but the practices are no different than what you learned in, in a sense, in the introductory meditation, where they say, sit and be aware while things come and go. So be aware of an emotion instead of falling into it. So we're cultivating, they don't use this word necessarily at the beginning, but you're cultivating a stillness something that is still within which other things can arise and pass. That gives us tremendous ability to watch how things are made and also to free ourselves from things and heal ourselves from things, the rifts and traumas that have been created in our mind can be healed through this attentive stillness It doesn't need anything from them and allows them to be as they are. So all of these are ways of retraining, of of weaning our mind off of uh, these habitual perceptions of constancy and, and permanence, of satisfaction that isn't really satisfying and of seeing the world in terms of a separate self that's operating uh, within an external fixed world. These are all perceptions, ways of seeing things. And the question is, is that the only way? And so we experiment with other ways and see uh, if there's more or less dukkha when we do that. And hopefully, I have great faith that the heart can choose uh, less dukkha over more dukkha. (laughs) And so 
um, over time. It's not an instantaneous thing, but over time, if we're willing to play with our perception, not be attached to seeing things a particular way, we can experience a, a range and, and hone in on, oh, this one has less, less dukkha, and go for that one, do that one a little more often. And eventually we'll see through the operation of perception itself to see the mind assemble concepts from sense data. That's very useful. So we have the immediate benefit from this of not mistaking flocks of geese for nuclear attacks, which is a way of saying that we'll live more peacefully if we um, allow our perception to be a little bit more fluid, see things as more changeable than we would think, see them as less likely to deliver absolute happiness, and therefore we don't need to get so upset about them, and also seeing them as less personal, less about me, me as a fixed entity. They're all related. Um, if, if things are not fixed, maybe you aren't fixed either. <laughs> and so these are um, things that lead us to, to live more serenely, more peacefully, in a very simple, everyday sense of when you go out to your car and the door handle breaks when you open it, you have a choice <laughs> about perceiving that as the universe hates me, why did I buy this car, I was so stupid, or door handles break because they're impermanent. They can't last forever as mechanical objects. So very simple everyday things, all the way to the the freedom that the Buddha was pointing at. They're not actually different, just different amounts of practice or something. All right, so do you have questions or comments? Perceptions, impressions. Yeah. It seems that in part of empathy is learning to see things the way other people see. Yeah, that's another great dimension of training. Not even just people, I, over and over again, we have a kitten at home. And that kitten can find so much joy in a small wad of paper chasing around the room. You think, why, why can't I find that much joy in a wad of paper? <laughs> but it extends to many other places. Right? When you're trying to teach somebody, they're not yet able to see the world the way you can. you're sometimes locked into seeing the world the way you do. So it can be difficult to, to you know, why, why can't you see that? <laughs> so there's, there's a, uh, I think it's a great part of almost training to exercise your empathy muscles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To, um, and that provides more serenity and peace in life also because we're connecting with other people. We're honoring their way of seeing things as just as valid as ours. And kittens are great teachers too, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.